Her book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, won the 2007 National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction. It explores the insidious force of environmental racism and the ways it continues to destroy black and brown lives and communities. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with author Harriet Washington. It was founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. So let's start with that term, environmental racism. It's a term that I think has gained a lot of traction in recent years, but there are probably a lot of people who really still don't exactly understand what it means. So I would love to have you spend just a little bit of time talking about what environmental racism is. I think that the simplest and clearest definition is actually the most useful. It's simply the disproportionate exposure of people of color to noxious environmental um, agents, everything from air pollution and the uh, chemicals, particulate matter, carbon that it holds, to heavy metals like mercury, arsenic, and of course, lead, uh, which has been very publicly um, uh, showcased in Flint and in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And aside from that, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of industrial chemicals, including that have not been adequately tested or in some cases not tested at all, before humans were exposed to them. And you add to that things like pathogens. Uh, we're, we're experiencing a lot of novel pathogens in this country, things that we think of pathogens in the developing world, tropical world, but the reality is it's climate that unites them, and the U.S. has an unusually warm climate for a, a developed nation. Mm. And so all these things can cause disease. Some cause disease directly because they're pathogens or we could... They harm the systems, but they others cause it indirectly by uh, compromising mental development in the fetus. So that a fetus exposed to some of these things will have brains that are suddenly and sometimes not so suddenly deranged, grow up to be adolescents with problems and adults with severe limitations. So disproportionate exposure to these things is racial. It, fall, it falls neatly along racial front lines. And I think that's probably the more confusing aspect of some people, because um, which I don't blame them, because a lot of the news media, even some of the medical media, will often cast these risks as socioeconomic, mm. implying that they're, they uh, fall along, along economic fault lines. But that's not so. Poverty is a risk factor. Race is a much, much stronger one. Mm. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about the concept of environmental racism, about the reality of environmental racism is something that you were just uh, getting to there in your comments, which is the disbelief that surrounds it. That I, I feel like even as people come to understand more what it is, you do have a lot of people kind of pushing back and saying, well, this isn't actually an example of racism. It's an outgrowth of the disparities that we see that are that fall along socioeconomic lines here in, in America. Uh, what is it about environmental racism that shows us specifically that race is the aggravator? Race is the determining factor in so many of these consequences. The data show us. 
Um, I, the, the clearest example that I usually use is that if you look at people who have very heavy exposures to environmental to- toxicants, you find that African-Americans who are solidly middle class with an income of fifty to 60000 a year have much greater exposure than extremely poor white Americans, profoundly poor Americans, who only earn $10,000 a year. That's extremely low, mm-hmm. but they have less exposure to environmental hazards. So clearly, again, it's not that poverty isn't a risk factor, but race is such a large risk factor that it completely overshadows it. It's much greater. It's much more significant. These are race-driven. There's also a semantic issue here because some definitions, and there's several, of socioeconomic also include race. Sure. They subsume race. So anywhere you look at it, we're looking at race. But the reluctance to face the fact that we're looking at uh, racial fault lines has a lot to do with reluctance to face the fact of racism at all in American life. It's frankly a difficult thing to admit that your country has these ugly disparities mm. so that people on um, people's lives, health, and their life expectancy are striated by race. That's a hard thing to admit, but it's reality, and we have to face it if we want to change it. Mm. What about the question or the concept of intentionality around environmental racism? It's one of the things that I think also is very difficult for Americans to get their minds around, the idea that so much of systemic inequality is not necessarily about intentional acts or things that people know will have racist consequences, but they are part of systems that were built on the idea of racism and inequality, and therefore their consequences play out in that way. Can you talk about the relationship to intentionality and kind of purposeful action and environmental racism? Actually, it doesn't matter at all. Mm. Why is intentionality important? Is it important to the people whose children are killed, who die early or die in the womb? Is it important to the people who are permanently, um, have their cognitive powers dampened by exposure? doesn't matter to the victims at all. Intentionality only matters to the perpetrators. Mm. Again, I think that same discomfort. No one wants to admit that through um, choices their group has made, the dominant group has made, people are consigned to a life of being poisoned. It's much easier to excuse oneself, to use exculpatory strategies by saying that, well, no one intended this, but it doesn't matter whether it was intended or not. And the reason why, I frankly, I'm going to be honest and say, I bristle a bit when I hear that. Mm -hmm. And here's why. The courts have used intentionality to avoid addressing the issue. They have. Um, Robert Bullard, who is a pioneer in this, he was working, collecting data, and um, with, along with his wife, um, making legal challenges to places like Houston about their um, pockets of people of color who were unduly exposed to environmental toxins. Very early on, decades ago, he was doing that. His initial efforts were stymied because the courts determined that, yes, People of color were being poisoned disproportionately, but he had to prove not only that, they had to, they were charged with proving it was intended. Mm-hmm. Why? Why why you why would you have to prove that? Right. And that has been echoed by courts since then. Um, after North Carolina has been fighting its environmental exposures since nineteen eighty two. And the courts told it the same thing. You have to prove the intent of government to poison you. That should not be a hurdle that um, 
people who are victims should have to surmount. Yeah, it's about the consequences, and that's where the focus. Right. So the, when you talk about intentionality, basically, you know, you you have to recognize that you're considering the um, the interests and the feelings of the dominant group. We're talking about biopower, unfortunately. We're talking about dominant group, and you're dismissing the damage, the real damage is done to others. So you have to decide what is more important to you. After a quick break, more of my conversation with Harriet Washington, author of A Terrible Thing to Waste. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. I'd also like to talk about the, the sort of um, interconnectedness of this brand of racism and systemic inequality to other kinds of racism and systemic inequality. And in particular, I think housing discrimination has an incredible overlap with environmental racism and the consequences that black and brown people suffer as a result. That's true, absolutely. And housing discrimination is interesting in that many people tend to think that it's a problem of the past. It's not so. It was certainly much more dramatic in the past and much more, um, it was encoded into law. In large swathes of the country, we had um, a law uh, establishing uh, American apartheid, segregation, mm-hmm. uh, delineating where you couldn't couldn't live. Before then, from the period of enslavement, you know, through the post-enslavement period, um, you had um, designation of areas where African Americans were to live and whites lived. Whites had African Americans in general living as far from them as possible for a variety of reasons. Uh, they African Americans were consigned to areas that were really unhealthy. Um, Swampy, near where animals um, were kept, so they were exposed to the pathogens and the fecal manner of animals. Um, very unhealthy areas, far from whites. That continued under um, segregation, and that continued after segregation. After de jure segregation ended, very little ended in this country. In fact, I spoke to um, an expert two years ago who shocked me, who um, at the Harvard School of Public Health, David Williams pointed out that segregation, housing segregation and residential segregation is so entrenched in this country that if we were to achieve ra- racial parity, mm-hmm. 66% of African Americans would have to move somewhere to move, else. Right, yes. <laughs> there are still areas, Alabama stands out, as it often does with negative things, um, Alabama <laughs> stands out as a, um, a state where segregation is still on the books. It's a law still on the books that was never reneged. Um, you will still find law stipulating um, that in venues like schools, whites and African-Americans need to be separated, and indeed they are. If you look at the data, you find, um, I think there has been the first integrated school in Alabama opened in 2018. Wow. So in addition to the law, there has been economic custom. Um, Many, when... We found that urban housing that was older was not only crumbling, filled with um, vermin and pathogens, but also uh, inundated with lead, lead in the pipes, 
lead in the interior wall paint, lead dust. That was around the time in 70, when, um, between the 16 and 17, where there's a lot of white flight going to the suburbs. Of course, African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans could not follow them to the suburbs because they were all these con- uh, contractual um, notations in housing contracts. I mean, when you signed a lease, you had to promise not to sell to a black person. Right. You had to promise not to rent to a black person. And, you know, these kind of codicils are not, um, they still exist now. So we have certain types of segregation that are perfectly legal. In housing, even in places like New York City where I live, um, in housing there are um, boards that are permitted to discriminate. No one um, questions their authority in terms of deciding who can and who cannot move into um, a, one of these um, you know, desirable housing situations, mm-hmm. you know, high-rise, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So segregation is still with us, and redlining has been separating people of color from home ownership for a very long time and still does. Even the touted GI Bill, when we, um, when we came back from Germany to the U.S., my father had been stationed in, in southern Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, my father had left the army, was very excited about the GI Bill, buying a house in the suburbs. He was never able to buy one. Yes. No yes. one would sell a house to him. All his buddies from the army who were, who were white ended up out in the suburbs. We had to live in the city. Yeah. So um, I, still- I tell this story uh, all the time about my own father who mm-hmm. grew up in Mississippi, uh, in, born in the 30s in Mississippi and grew up to join the Air Force during the Korean War, served in the Air Force during the Korean War, comes home to Mississippi where, of course, Jim Crow is still in place, but even more importantly, the GI Bill that is eventually extended to all Korean War vets does not benefit African Americans because of housing discrimination, because of college admittance kinds of uh, discrimination. I mean, that's a very, very common story for African Americans, and I don't know that, that lots of other people really understand that or, or, or believe that that's, that that's true. Exactly. Exactly. So housing barriers, um, which were very written into the law and openly accepted for a very long time, still linger in a more shadowy existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about lead exposure, which you address in a lot of detail in your book. Uh, Flint, Michigan is now, of course, the highest profile narrative, I think, uh, in in American history around the idea of lead exposure and the the problems with lead exposure. But you also point to Detroit's problem of lead paint in many of the city's homes. Talk about how how, uh, the rate of exposure in Detroit and the Flint region compare to other parts of the country. Well, we have fallen into the habit of this country in pointing out the hot spot du jour, you know, um, Pittsburgh has got a great deal of um, lead painting its water and paint and habitations. And then we point to the next city. In the past, we focused on Baltimore, mm-hmm. which also has a serious problem, yes. and New York City. But I don't see it that way. It's, the, it's America that has a serious lead poisoning problem not any particular city, because we have to remember that there are many municipalities and many areas where people are um, being exposed to high levels of lead poisoning, and we simply don't know it yet. You know, for whatever reason, it hasn't been measured. Don't forget that the people of Flint were lied to initially, 
and told they had no problem when they began complaining about water that didn't taste right and didn't look right. So, frankly, it's an American problem. And um, I've read about it enough that I don't really see the utility sometimes in carving it up into different municipalities Mm. because it is an American problem. I think it's something that we really need to – it'll be more efficiently faced as such. Mm. So – That's an interesting way to look at it, and you're right. We don't tend to think of it in that broader kind of meta sense. We we look at each individual kind of flare up uh, of this and and respond to it. And and as you point out in the book, the consequences of this in in terms of brain development are so serious that um, that that it almost calls on us to to have a more serious and more comprehensive response. Yes, and I think it's really important to confront industry in a way that has not been confronted. Um, Unfortunately, this poisoning has been allowed to proceed when government has failed to rein in industry. Something as basic and yet as critical as knowing which industrial chemicals are causing serious hazards. We don't even know that because often the tests that are required are insufficient to see things that are not obvious. Um, It's obvious if a certain industrial chemical causes, um, well, sometimes, causes problems like lung disease or cancers. These are things that one can see. These are things that are sometimes difficult to tie to the exposure, but it can be done more easily than tying things like cognitive problems. When you have generations of children in certain areas, being prone to behavioral problems, lack of attention, inability to read, inability to uh, pursue basic neurological functions as a result of exposure that they had 15 or 16 years earlier in utero, it can be very hard to track what, you know, what is causing it. So um, I think one of the things that we don't do well and we need to do well is confronting industry establishing real standards that will really protect people and monitoring them and making sure they measure up. Unfortunately, our EPA has gone in the opposite direction under President Trump. Mm -hmm. It has decided to roll back protections and to cease enforcing um, the protections that exist adequately. For example, uh, about a year ago, the EPA ceased all um, surprise inspections. So now when there's an inspection, they know the EPA or inspectors are coming. Obviously, that's going to be much less effective than a surprise infection. And I could talk all day about that, which I won't. (laughs) But, you know, there's a huge catalog of dereliction of duty, in my opinion, on the part of the government. So that needs to be addressed, and I think it should be addressed on a nationwide basis. Mm. Because the story is really familiar, whether I'm talking to people in Flint, whether I'm talking to people in Baltimore, the same dereliction of duty, the same lies from public health establishments that should be you know, advocating for people, um, the same pattern keeps emerging of, you know, bad behavior Mm -hmm. and it needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. I think it's really healthy um, that we're able to discuss um, the reality of environmental racism. I understand that for people who have been shielded from it their whole life by their experiences, it can be a difficult concept to accept. So I really urge you to um, do what I do when I have a question about whether something is real or not. Educate oneself in a way that might be a little different than you've done in the past. Um, find out the books of Robert Bullard, others who write about it, and see how the data present a different picture of America than perhaps the one that you see in your everyday life or I see in my everyday life. Um, 
The fact is we're a country that has a very wide range of experiences, a very wide range of exposures, and it can be difficult from our corner of the country to perceive what other people are experiencing. And so, and of course, because I like data, I like figures, I find them really illuminating, I also urge you to look at the figures, look at the data, the numbers that we've collected that show us a portrait of who's at risk. And I think you will better understand why I say this is a problem assailing people of color and one that we need to get a handle on now. That was my conversation with author Harriet Washington, author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, which won the 2007 National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction. Next time on Created Equal, my conversation with author and NPR TV critic Eric Degen. Bill Cosby's character, he, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He spoke seven languages. He was a martial arts expert. <laughs> he had to be all these things in order to stand next to a white guy on television uh, somewhat as his equal. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stange and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.